It's in your Bibles today. I'm going to use several scriptures here initially, but the subject today is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. This past week, I spoke three times to our Christian school students, and I I presented it more as a lecture, I guess, because it was on my heart to just teach these young people everything I could in three sessions about God Himself, the person of God. And I got to thinking midway through, this is pretty good stuff here. And so I thought, this might even help out on Sunday morning. So I took it and put a new face on it and put a little makeup on it and dressed it up. And here it is today in adult form, okay? But I hope that you have your Bible. And one of the key verses I want to use is Genesis 1-1, where we started a few moments, a few months ago. But you know that when you don't have to turn there. In the beginning, God, fourth word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 40, because we have a fairly long description there of God Himself, and it's one of many places in the Bible where we can learn about God, but we don't have time to read all of them today, but we'll read this one as just a descriptive passage of what I want to talk to you about. In Isaiah chapter number 40, and when you find it, stand to your feet with me, and we'll read from God's Word today. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12, beginning there. Referring to the Lord, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out the heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance, or a scale. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him, With whom took God counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? These are all rhetorical questions. Obviously, there's no answer. Nobody did that, did they? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Boy, sometimes with all that's happening in America, And sometimes I listen to people, and it's okay to have national pride, but you know what the tragic thing is, is God could survive even without America. That's what that verse teaches, isn't it? The nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're counted as the little bit of dust on the scale. Behold, he taketh up the owls as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn or the beast thereof, sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations are before him as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Who will you compare God to? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Written, by the way, 700 years before Christ, and the Bible's teaching that the earth is circular. And the inhabitants thereof, 
or like grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on the high, and behold, who hath created these things? Verse 28, hast thou not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, and neither is weary, and there is no searching of His understanding? And while you're standing, turn back to to the book of Proverbs, if you will, with me, please. And I'll add one other that I wanted to read to you this morning. In chapter 9 of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 9 and verse 10, and this perhaps is the most important of the passages I've shared with you for our discussion today, Proverbs 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But note, the knowledge of the holy. Now, the holy is two, are two words that refer to God. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of the holy is understanding. If you want to understand life, it begins with an understanding of God. You may be seated, and thank you. Your Bible begins with the simple assumption that there's a God. There's no proof. That it doesn't offer a proof to you of God. It assumes that everybody believes in God. A simple declarative statement, a statement of fact. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so the Bible begins with God, the fourth word of the canon of Scripture. And then that word appears again 2,606 times in the Old Testament, 1,320 times in the New Testament for a total 3,926 times in your Bible that specific version of the word God appears in the Old Testament, Elohim, in the New Testament, Theos, the Greek version of that, in our Bible, just God, almost 4,000 times. So you can't read a page of the Bible hardly without reading about God Himself. It's interesting to me that when the Bible was written, that no one doubted that there was a God. Everybody believed in it. After all, it was Adam and Eve, and they were out taking a walk with God every day in the, in the garden. So there wasn't any purpose in saying, I want to prove to you there's a God. I want to give you all the evidence about God. No. It simply said, there is a God, and He created the heaven and the earth. Now, I don't know that there are any atheists in a crowd of people at the Florence Baptist Temple on Sunday morning. I would rather doubt it, but it's a possibility. Somebody could have walked in here, and you have in your mind and in your thoughts, you've gone over that, into that position, and you don't believe that there is, in fact, a person, a being named God. I don't know that there are any atheists watching. I doubt that many people turn on a television 
set or go on their computer that are atheists to listen to me. I don't, that, would, that would be a folly, wouldn't it? But I do believe there are people here with nagging doubts and questions in their mind that they've had maybe all of their life. I've gone through that period of time. I've told you about it. And so maybe I can help you with those things. Because beginning about the year 2000, about 22 years ago now, we noted there was a sharp rise in atheism in America. There were authors that became rather notorious, very famous. There was Christopher Hitchings known as the best-known atheist in the world at that time. He's since passed into eternity. Sam Harris wrote, and so did Richard Dawkins, a famous scientist from England, and a number of others as well. They wrote these books, and these books became bestsellers. And since the 90s, that, the late 90s, this position of atheism has been growing. Now, new, tre- uh, new studies indicate that that trend of atheism has, in fact, topped out, and it may be declining, and we hope that it is. But we know for sure that there was a great rise in atheistic belief in the uh, 20 years past from where we are right now. Until then, only about 3 or 4% of our population were atheists. And they tell me that there are estimates of up to 15 or 20 percent among college-age young people uh, that declare, I don't believe there is such a being as God. And so today, let me begin with something very basic and talk to you about the importance of theology, the importance of theology. And by theology, I mean the very study of God Himself. I don't mean going to college and taking a course in religious studies or comparative religions or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Theology, the word theos is the word God. And so the other part of the word simply means to study or to have knowledge of. And so theology is not even talking about all the doctrines of the Bible if you talk about theology proper. Theology is the study of God Himself, Almighty God. What is He like? His attributes. Who is He? What is He? Where is He? And so on. That is theology proper, we call it. A great writer of yesteryear named A.W. Tozer said, listen to this quote, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to my mind and your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Another philosopher of yesteryear, Mortimer Adler, said, there are more consequences for thought and action regarding whether or not you believe in or deny God than from answering any other basic question of life. There are more consequences for the way you think or believe about God than any other basic question in life. In other words, your view of God, more than any other fact about you, will determine the direction of your life. And so, the study of God 
theology. Don't run from the Word. The study of God sets the direction. It's the wind and the sail of your sailboat of life, and it will determine the direction in which you go more than any other single fact. People forget that in the early days of our country, when you went to any of the great early universities or colleges, you were required to take theology because it was believed that if you didn't understand something about God, if you didn't study God, theology, that you weren't really equipped for any other uh, profession either. And so in those early days, if you went to Harvard, if you went to Yale or Brown or Princeton, any of those early universities in the United States, you were required to take a number of courses on theology. You just weren't prepared for any profession. You weren't prepared to be a good citizen of the nation if you didn't know something about what the Bible teaches about God. Now, those days have long passed, haven't they? But if you were going to study medicine, you needed to know about God. If you were going to be an engineer, a knowledge of God was essential. If you were going to uh, be in any one of the professions, the knowledge of God was vital to your being able to be a good citizen. Now, as I've preached through the book of Genesis, I've talked to you about what we call the ultimate questions, the ultimate questions. The ultimate questions are the most important questions that we have in life. They're the basic questions that deal with everything else. And I want you to see that those basic questions that we've been talking about now for a number of weeks all of them relate to God. The question of origin, where did I come from? Well, you either have to choose that you evolved and came upward from a single cell being to where we are today, or you have to say God was involved in it. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 27, so God created man in his image. And uh, the second question is the question of identity. Who am I? And that same verse gives me the answer for that, that God created them male and female created he them. That's a big issue today. But the Bible answers that issue, that question in the very first chapter. The question of meaning. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Is there any real meaning to life? Or do we just live and breathe and eat and sleep and die and that's it? But the Bible gives me that answer. It says that God has a purpose for each of us. He has a plan for us. He knows the number of hairs on your head. God is interested in your life, so interested that He intervened in history so that you might have eternal life. The question of morality, how should we live? Is there some standard by which we live? How do I know what is right and wrong? You can't, de- you can't determine that unless you know something about theology, about God. How should we live? It is God and His character who defines right and wrong. You don't have any basis for morality if you take God off of the scene. 
It is God's character. There's got to be a fixed point, the philosopher said, if there's going to be any morality at all. Morality requires a fixed point, a fixed standard. What is that standard? It is the person, the character, the attributes of God that sets the standard for right and wrong. There's the ultimate question of destiny. Where am I going when this is all over? When I close my eyes in death, it re- again, it relates, as every one of these relate, it relates to God. And when I close my eyes in death, will I be with the Lord in eternity? Am I going to heaven or am I going to miss hell? The Bible says if I miss, it, or pardon me, I'll miss heaven. The Bible says if I miss heaven, I'll end up in a place called hell. And so I don't want to do that, do I? And so you understand all the ultimate questions have their answer in God is the answer to those questions. So what I'm trying to teach right now, nothing could be more important. As Tozer said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, that it sets the direction for our life more than any other single fact. And so today, listen well and learn everything you can about God. But let me tell you, more important than knowing about God, ladies and gentlemen, is knowing God. And there's a big difference. A lot of us sit in a church like this and get a head full of knowledge about God, but oh, how desperately we need to know God. And I'll talk to you about that later. Number two today, first is the importance of theology. Number two is belief in God as a universal innate human quality. Believing that there is a God is a universal innate human quality. What do I mean? Some have called this a first truth. A first truth is knowledge that you have just as a result of being born, of being a human being. You don't have to teach people about God. Now, you want to give them the details. You want to teach them what the Bible says. But what I mean is you don't have to teach people that there is a God. The fact that there is a God is innate. It's intuitive. I didn't have to teach my children to sit them down when they were two or three or four or five years old and say, hey, kids, there's a God. No, they already knew that. Children are born with the knowledge of God. It's innate. It's intuitive. It's normal and natural to believe in God. In fact, somebody said, and it's so true, atheists are made. They're not born. Show me somebody who is an atheist, and they had to be educated out of their belief in God. Somebody had to get hold of them and talk to them and convince them. Somebody, they had to read a book. They had to watch a bunch of movies or something. They had to be educated completely out of what was the normal, natural belief that we have, the belief in God. It's like the little boy who was raised in an atheist home. He was about four years old, and mom and daddy had brought him up saying, son, there is no God. Don't you believe that stuff like these other kids believe? And one day he went in the kitchen and asked his mother, he said, do you think God knows we don't believe in him? And I think that, that just nails it. I mean, children intuitively know that there is a God. We call the people who study 
human beings, anthropologists, big word, anthropologists have gone over this whole planet. And they've gone to all these primitive tribes and these people groups. and I mean people who are headhunters. And they've studied their culture and studied their religious background and so on. And you know what they've never found? They have never yet found a people group that have no God and have no belief in God and no deity. Wherever they are on this planet, human beings, unless educated out of it, they believe there is a God. And so they go and study these people groups. And these people, they may worship the sun. They, they worship the spirits of ancestors. They may worship a mountain. That's a holy mountain. Nobody can even go upon it. They may worship some image that they've made with their hand, an idol image. There's a Many, many variants, but they've never found a group of people who have no belief in the supernatural, no belief in God until you go to Harvard or somewhere like that. But the natural state of people, there's a lady over here, and she recently joined our church, and she spent her life in New Guinea. And... uh, She will tell you that primitive people, the problem is we don't go there to give them a religion. They already have a religion. We go there to teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ and His wonderful plan of salvation. Now, people sometimes say to me, can you prove that there's a God? Let me tell you something that I I told the young people this this week, and you know what? I could tell some of them were kind of shocked by it. I cannot prove to you there's a God. I can't prove to you the existence of God. I can pile up a whole bunch of evidence, and next Sunday in the message, the second part of this, I'm going to give you the evidence. I'm going to give you the three primary evidences that we understand uh, uh, who God is and why there is a God. And there's a lot of evidence, but I'm not going to try to do that today. I'm going to remind you of the nature of God first, that Jesus Christ said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and verse 24, he said, God is a spirit. And if you worship him, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. The nature of God is spiritual. It's not material. So God doesn't have a body like we have. In fact, Jesus said that again. In the book of Luke, chapter 24, Jesus said, A spirit hath not flesh and bones. He was talking to his disciples on the seashore after his resurrection. And they had come to him, and he was telling them about God and himself. And he was eating, and he was preparing breakfast for them, fish and honeycombs, it says. And they came to him And apparently it was in their minds that he might be some sort of spirit, some sort of ghost-like figure, because they they knew he had been dead. And now he's resurrected. And his point is, I am a man. I am in a body. I was dead, but I'm alive physically and materially. And his point is, if I were, if I were, 
if I were a spirit being only, then I wouldn't have this flesh and these bones. And so he tells us there about God. God is a spirit, and he is not confined to a body. He's a spirit being. It's very hard for me to get my mind about, around, around that, isn't it, you? I, I struggle with that, and we do because we always think about a person being a tangible, material being with something you can touch, feel, see with your eyes. I've wondered why, why doesn't why is it like that? And I think the reason it's like that is if God were confined to a body, He couldn't be omnipresent. He wouldn't be able to be everywhere at once. If He were confined to a body, He could be one place at a time. But by being a spirit being, He is here with us right now. And He is in Africa and Asia and India and the islands of the sea. He cannot be confined to a place at any time. We say he's omnipresent, everywhere present. He's present everywhere upon the, in the universe. And you say, well, why would he want to do that? Why doesn't he just give us some hard facts, tangible proof, so that nobody could ever question whether there's a God or not? And I think I know the answer to that. It's in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, a very familiar passage where it says that the thing that pleases God is faith, that without faith it's impossible to please God. And so I think God reveals plenty of evidence that we might believe in Him, but I think that He puts a little gap there that requires faith, and we hear about Him, and faith is believing what we hear about Him from His Word. And faith is then acting on that, and then faith is trusting Him. And so the atheist chooses not to believe the evidence and refuses to take a, a, a step of trust. But wait a minute. The evidence would indicate the atheist can't prove his position any better than us. He doesn't have more evidence than we have. And he's not smarter than we are. He just chooses not to take that one step of trust and put his faith in Almighty God. And the thing that pleases God is faith. Without faith, you can't please him. A philosopher one time was asked, how do you define beauty? How would you define the beautiful? It might be a piece of art. It might be a nature scene looking out across the ocean or the mountains. It might be a beautiful, beautiful woman or human being, a portrait of a beautiful person. There are so many things that have beauty. How do you define beauty, Mr. Philosopher? And the philosopher said, beauty can't be proven. It can only be shown. I can show you beauty but I can't prove to you it's beautiful. That to some degree is in the eye of the beholder. I may not be able to absolutely categorically prove to you God because you can't apply the scientific method to God. 
God is a spirit. You can't measure God. You don't get two pounds of God. There's no way to measure God. There's no way to put him into some empirical database. You look at the evidence that he's provided, and then you draw your conclusion about him. And the evidence for God may not be able to be proven like you prove a mathematical formula, but the evidence for God can be shown, and you can see it. In fact, I want you to go with me. Well, I want you to turn to uh, the book of uh, Psalms first, Psalm 53. I want you to, uh, the, the people that refuse to believe in God or that reject the knowledge of God, you know, there's only one verse in all the Bible that deals with atheism. Boy, these atheists think they're pretty, I mean, they think they're so smart. I mean, you really do have to be pretty arrogant to think that you know so much that you can say categorically, there is no God, don't you? And I come in my Bible to Psalm 53. Here's the only verse in the Bible where God even addresses the atheist. Psalm 53 and verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there's no God. Now, if you're listening today or watching on television or the Internet or you're sitting here in the building, I don't mean to be crude and ugly, but the Bible says you're a fool if you, don't, if you deny the existence of God. I didn't say that. I'm just the messenger. God said that. He defined you as foolish. You really think you're so intelligent? You know everything in the world to the point that that you say there's no God? But most of the time when we quote that verse, we just stop after that first sentence there. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, read on with me. Corrupt are they. Uh-oh. God has even taken it further with you if you're an atheist today. And then he says, they have done abominable iniquity. You know what abominable iniquity means? That's a mouthful, isn't it? But it means to be perverse, perverted in your thinking, wicked, ungodly, and unrighteous. Now, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make with you. God says to the atheist, you're a fool. And then God says there's a reason for your foolishness. And that it's because you are corrupt and full of abominable iniquity, perverseness, and ungodliness. Now, here's the conclusion I draw. The reason people don't believe in God is not because they have an intellectual problem. They have a moral problem. That's what that second part of that verse says. Corrupt. Full of abominable iniquity. The atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. The reason that an atheist can't find God is he has a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. He's not smarter than everybody else. You read those books by Richard Dawkins, and he is so arrogant. He's so arrogant, he managed to get himself kicked off the Internet in two or three places now. I mean, nobody can speak to him about anything. And, the, and his problem is not intellectual. His problem is moral. We find that out by knowledge in his own life. And so that's the only time God really deals with this in his word. 
So lastly today, let me show you how God reveals himself to those who sincerely want to know him. In other words, he's saying the atheist is not a sincere atheist if you look at the evidence. And I want you to go now to Psalm 19, Psalm 19, and I'm going to give you three ways that God has chosen to reveal himself. You see, I wouldn't know a single thing in the world about God if he didn't choose to take the initiative and come to me and reveal himself to me. Now, let me say it again because y'all are looking for that reference, okay? Everybody get it? Look up this way. I want to make sure you get what I'm saying. There's no way you would know one thing in the world about God if God didn't choose to take the initiative and reveal himself to you. And he reveals himself to you in three ways that I want to show you right here this morning. The first one is creation. God reveals himself through the creation, Psalm 19 and 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God is his full range of character, his attributes. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, and the firmament, we would call that space. The heavens declare the glory of God, and space, the solar system, if you will, shows his handiwork. And verse 2, every day creation is making a speech, and every night, night after night, the creation itself, the universe is showing the knowledge of God. There's no speech or language by human beings on the earth where the voice of creation is not being heard. God has revealed himself through creation. I was talking to our young people, and, and, and I've heard comments from people today, young people particularly. They have the idea that somehow there's a great conflict between science and the Scripture. And there really is not until you get into the field of evolution. But what, what we forget is that early, Christ, early scientists were almost all Bible-believing Christians. I, the primary Bible I use and the Bible that I recommend if people want a good study Bible is the Defender's Study Bible written by Dr. Henry Morris and a team of scientists. It's a book. It's a Bible specifically with notes and uh, studies there that, that gives the biblical account of, of science, how you reconcile science and, and, and theology, if you will. In the back of that, there's an appendix. And the appendix, is, it shows 41 early scientists who believed in God. And it makes the statement, basically, early science was invented by Christians. For example, Sir Isaac Newton invented calculus. Joseph Lister, after whom they named Listerine, Joseph Lister invented antiseptic surgery. He discovered it. Louis Pasteur, bacteriology. Robert Boyle, chemistry. Michael Faraday, electromagnetics. Gregory Mendel, genetics, Lord Kelvin, thermodynamics, John Woodward, paleontology, and I could go on, 41 of them, pioneers in science, until, 
Actually, up until only about 150 years ago, almost all scientists were Bible-believing Christians. And then Darwin's theory came along, and God's account of things was rejected. And uh, now today, people almost equate science with being anti-Bible, anti-God. Don't do that. that. That is a very limited view. If you'll step back and take the historic view of science, you'll find that you don't have to be an unbeliever to be a scientist. God reveals Himself through the creation. And when we study His creation, we are studying what? We're studying science. The second way God reveals Himself not only is through creation, but it's secondly through revelation, through revelation. God has revealed Himself through His Word, the Bible. And I've spent so many times I've talked about that. I'm not going to do it again. But the Bible claims to be the Word of God. And over and over and over, you have these terms. The, the Bible declares itself to be the Word of God. It declares itself to be, uh, it talks about, thus saith the Lord. And terms like that, that uh, over and over indicate the Bible considers itself God's Word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, says Almighty God. The third way God reveals Himself is the incarnation. The creation, study the creation, it reveals God's hand. Study the Word of God, His revelation. We would never know these things about Him if we didn't have a Bible. And thirdly, the incarnation is Jesus Christ, of course, God becoming a man, God becoming a human being so we could identify with Him as a man. It's hard for me to, as I've already said, to identify with the Spirit, but I can identify with Jesus Christ. He ate. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was tempted. He was treated unkindly. He was probed in every way you can imagine, and yet without sin. And so I can look at Jesus Christ. He's my example. And I can see God because the Bible says the Word, God before He was created as a man, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. The miracle of Christmas God became flesh. Turn in your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 1 for just a quick minute. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry or various times and in divers or different manners, spake in times past. God spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. And He hath in these last days spoken unto unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. Now look at this verse. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things in the universe by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand the majesty on high. 
Go back in the verse, verse 3 there, and circle that, that phrase, that term, the express image of his person. What is an express image? It's an exact replication, a mirror image. And so I looked in my Bible today, or pardon me, I looked in my mirror as I got ready, and I saw a mirror image. I saw, to use this term, an express image of his person, an express exact replication. And when you look at Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, hear me, you're looking at God. You want to know how God thinks? Study what Jesus thinks. You want to know how God speaks? Study how Jesus speaks. You want to know how God reacts in a circumstance or a situation? You look at Jesus Christ. He is the express image of the Father, Almighty God. And what did he say? He said in John 14, I am the way. What do you mean the way? I'm the way to God. I am the truth. What do you mean? I'm the truth about God. I am the life. I will give you the very life of God. I will give you eternal life. If you'll come to God by me, and if you don't come by me, you can't come. And so we end where we started. What do I mean? I mean the quote by Dr. Tozier, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It will set the direction for the rest of your life. Our heads are bowed.